Good morning, gentlemen. Greetings to you. Uh, weather turned on us a little bit there, didn't it? We'll just see what that old groundhog's going to do next week. That, that always nails it, you know. Whatever the groundhog sees his shadow, then it's going to be something else. All right. From superstitions to the true word of God, Matthew chapter 10. We are in Jesus' second major sermon in Matthew. And remember, uh, Matthew's purpose in his gospel is to make disciples. Jesus says at the end of Matthew's gospel, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. And uh, he says, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. What are those things? Well, we'd be looking at them. And we looked at the Sermon on the Mount on Christian character, and now we see that these characters are supposed to go out. And Jesus went out himself, and he showed us how to do it. He's the perfect trainer. He gives us exquisite teaching, and he gives us a perfect example, showing us how to do it. He gets in the trench with us and actually does it with us. So he has been in ministry himself, and we saw what that ministry was. It was preaching, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, teaching the Word of God, and healing all manner of diseases, caring for people's physical needs, the holistic gospel, the whole thing, proclamation of the gospel, demonstration of the gospel, all together. That's the way it's supposed to be. And then he called these 12 knuckleheads and, and sent them out to do what? Just what he was doing. You say, how are they going to do that? They're just knuckleheads. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I'm going to give you authority. I'm going to give you power. I'm going to enable you to do that. And he's still doing it. So we, uh, we go out not trusting ourselves and our training or our intelligence or our wit. No, we go out trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ that he's willing to use people like Peter, James, Andrew, and John. He'll be willing to use us. So he calls them to himself and he sends them out to carry out his ministry. And then he, he warns them. He says, you're going to get into a lot of trouble. And he says, do not be anxious. So... Uh, renounce all anxiety, and he says, do not be afraid. All those people can do is kill you. They can't put you in hell. Only I can do that. So don't fear those people. And if you believe in the resurrection, then you realize that our death is just a temporary thing we got to deal with here uh, because we're coming back with a roar. So he says, don't be afraid of those people. No matter what they threaten to do to you, no matter what they actually do to you, don't be afraid of them. And, of course, these apostles needed that word because they went all over the world and all of them were put to death for the proclamation of the gospel uh, with the exception of John who was in exile. So they needed that lesson desperately. And so do the people who are uh, reading Matthew's gospel. So do we. Now we come to the end of the mission sermon. And we're at verse 34. Uh, and uh, uh, we're going to see that here at the end, he really gives them a charge, which is a great thing because we need to be charged up. Our inclination is not go out there and, and beat snakes, not go out there and get ourselves into more. We're already in enough trouble. Why do we want to be in more trouble? We already got people mad at us. Why do we want more people mad at us? And Jesus gives them a charge at the end, which is a wonderful, wonderful challenge for the mission. And I, I pray that I'll hear it. I pray that you'll hear it. Uh, so that we, along with those early disciples, will know that Jesus intends to send us out, and he gives us plenty, not only of warning, but he gives us plenty of motives. Let's look at them, beginning with verse 34. 
Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So it's new. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Okay, let's look first of all at verses 34 through 36. The mission of Jesus brings radical consequences. The mission of Jesus brings radical consequences. Now, this is a strange way to start this section. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. Well, why shouldn't I think that you've come to bring peace to the earth? Because you told me you'd come to bring peace to the earth. And so did the angels when you were born, said peace on earth and goodwill upon the, to men on whom his favor rests. So what do you mean, Jesus? Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. Well, as you know, in uh, Hebrew idiom and in Jesus' ministry, you have uh, many type of uh, literary devices. And sometimes uh, uh, exaggerations are, are one of them. Uh, and sometimes contrasts are one of them. So Jesus is saying, I did not come to bring peace to the earth. Well, he means it in two different senses. It's like a paradox. It looks like uh, a contradiction, but it really isn't. Because you're talking about two, two different types of things. So he did come to bring peace, ultimately, and that, that's where the, the difference would be, ultimately, in the long run. Also, he did come to pre, bring, bring peace now in our hearts. So right now, if you're in Jesus Christ, you have peace with him right now. And because you have peace with him, you have the resources to cultivate peace in your own heart. Stop condemning yourself. Why should you? The Father doesn't condemn you. It's ridiculous. Why would you condemn yourself uh, when, when God acquits you? Go figure. It's that old self that condemns, your conscience is condemning you. And the apostles teach us how to appropriate the peace we have with God so we have peace in our hearts. We have increasing peace now within our relationships within the body of Christ. Not perfect. We have all kinds of conflicts every day, every day. But we are growing in our peacefulness with each other. So we're experiencing some peace right now. And ultimately, of course, we know we'll have perfect peace, not only within our own hearts, we will stop condemning ourselves when Jesus Christ comes back. We will have perfect peace with each other, and we'll have perfect peace with the cosmos, because even the wolf will lie down with the lamb, Isaiah says. So all those ancient 
enemies will become friends in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the peace that one day will come to us. Now, what Jesus is talking about is he's saying, look, if you think the peace for the eschaton is going to be yours right now, you need to think again. I didn't come to bring peace in every respect right now. In some respects, I came to bring war. And you've got to realize that when you follow Jesus Christ, you've taken sides against the world. John puts it this way. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. So the world and God are hostile right now. The devil and God are hostile. So, duh, if you take sides over here, you just created two enemies, the world and the devil, and you can add a third one, your flesh. So that's the war that's going on. So it's both peace and war. That's the paradox we have to deal with. We're living in the convergence of two ages right now. The old world that we're living in and the new world that has dawned and is coming. We see the first shaft of light, of the morning light, and it'll be full noonday just around the corner. That's when there will be no more war. It'll be completely peace. So Jesus is putting it this way to make his point. If you think that I came to bring peace on the earth, that means that every one of your relationships is going to go hunky-dory. You got another thought coming. I'm going to make that situation worse for you in many respects. So that's the warning we're getting. Now look at the way in which he presses his point home. He's not talking about these business competitors that have been ruthlessly taking your customers from you. No, he's talking about your mama and your daddy. This is getting personal. He says, for I have come to set against a man against his father. I thought sons were supposed to be loyal and faithful and loving to their father. Well, you are. But... If you become a Christian, sometimes your father, your own earthly father, will emotionally abandon you. And some of you in this room have experienced that. Sometimes your children will do that. Sometimes even your mother. And sometimes even your in-laws. You find some of you are in families where there is a big division. Uh, I, I love my siblings. They're not believers. There's a huge division. There's a huge gap there. And any, almost anything we talk about, if we have a meaningful conversation on almost anything, eventually that division is going to show up. Why is that? Because once you have clear convictions at the core of your being, no matter what they are, they radiate out into every area of your life. Politics, financial management, even vacations, child rearing, family relations, uh, everything. Uh, the books you read, the movies you watch, everything. And so it radiates out of the core of your being. If you've given your being to Jesus Christ, every aspect of your life it has Christ radiating through it. That's what you want. Well, it's true with the unbeliever. They have some core convictions too. And it radiates through everything that they do and say in art. There's just constant conflict uh, when you're close to someone. And in, in uh, natural families, uh, nuclear families, you're naturally as close as you can get. And so when you get in close range with someone that you disagree with violently, you're talking about warfare, aren't you? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Well, I'll never forget some years ago I was at the presidential prayer breakfast about this time of year. In fact, I guess it's next week, isn't it, or the week after? Uh, and uh, I was at a table, and at one point during the prayer breakfast, which, of course, there's not a whole lot of prayer going on, which is just as well because you got people from all different religions. Who knows who we'd be praying to? But it's, it's a ni there's some nice 
you know, flowery speeches and people are being very religious and all that, so it's kind of nice and everybody gets together and feels like we have, you know, the same God and everybody's fine. But anyway, which is to say, I don't know why I was there, but uh, <laughs> I know, I remember I was invited. That's what it was. Uh, so I'm at my table and at some point in these ceremonies, they say, why don't you just, just greet each other, you know, kind of like we do in our church, you know, halfway through the service. Everybody greet each other. Just pretend as though you like people for a few minutes, will you? Um, so... Uh, there was a guy right behind me, a young guy, younger than I was at that time. And so I just went over and talked to him. And, and we had enough time for me to get the, a little uh, nugget, you know, the core of his story. This was a young Orthodox Jewish guy who had become a Christian. And he, and he told me that. He said, I have an Orthodox Jewish background. And a few years ago, I really came to know Christ. Well, I want to know about that. You know, in my three-minute greeting time, give me your story. And I, I won't tell you the whole story, but I, I, I will tell you this. He said, after I became a Christian, he said, you know in Orthodox Judaism, it's much like Islam. If you turn to Christ, you're dead. You're just out of it. You no longer belong to the family. You're out the door. And he said, here's what happened to me. When I became a Christian, as young as I was, I wanted to go off to Bible college and you know, learn, learn the faith more deeply. You know, get familiar with the New Testament and then relearn the Old Testament from a proper apostolic perspective and all that. So he says, I'm going to Bible college. And he said, when I got on the train to go to Bible college, my mom grabbed my hand and would not let go. And he said, Sandy, I had to peel every one of her fingers off my hand to go off to Bible college. And I've never forgotten that picture. You have to peel off every commitment you have. And here's a man, look, we all love our mothers. And the reason we do, they love us, and they're about the only people sometimes, right? I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll defend, they'll scratch the eyeballs out of anybody taking us on, right? We love our mamas. I can't think of a relationship that most men would, would cherish more, someone they would defend more, someone they would care for more than their own mother. And here's a young man who has to peel his mother's fingers off his hand. Wow, what Jesus is saying is there is going to be division within your own family. And if you examine Jesus' family, you see it started with him. They thought he was crazy. Your family sometimes thinks you're nuts too. Uh, I know mine does. Uh, of course, in their case, there, there's some truth to it. <laughs> but in Jesus' case, there wasn't. Um, and they thought he was crazy. They tried to rescue him. And they didn't understand him. And then someone says, you remember they, they said at one point, hey, your, your mom and your siblings are out there waiting for you. And he's, you remember what he said? Who is my mother? Who are my brothers and sisters? Is it not those who do the will of my Father who's in heaven? Jesus consciously is redefining what real eternal family is. That's a very difficult thing to do because we have people who have loved and nurtured us. They've done things for us. We have a sense of indebtedness to them. And I know some of you really cherish your families. And the problem is that so often families dictate your life and schedule more than Christ does. Families are wonderful. The Bible teaches us how to serve our families. And if we do not provide for our families, Paul says to Timothy, we're worse than unbelievers. So there are plenty of instructions in the Bible about how to love and care for our families. But make no mistake about it. The best way that we love anybody, including our families, is to have an unconditional, unwavering commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let every man uh, be a liar, 
God is true. Uh, let the rest of the world go to hell. I'm following Jesus Christ. And a man has to make that decision. And your children and your wife, if they know what's good for them, want you to do that. Some of them don't know what's good for them. You do. Be a man of God. Make that decision first. Sometimes I've had women say to me, you know, Pastor, I'd be in church, but my husband, you know, he's not a believer. And it, it just really upsets him when I go to church. Oh, really? Upset your husband? Oh, well, by all means, forget Jesus if your husband's upset. You know, there are moments when you have to upset anybody to be what you're supposed to be. Some of your wives will get really angry with you if you tithe your income. Maybe she's not a believer. You say, honey, I'm sorry. I'm under orders. There are some, there are some commitments I have that are greater than my commitment to you. I want you to know I love you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you, but I have a higher commitment, and that's just who I am. I'm really sorry it upsets you. But I believe that God's going to bless our household and bless my leadership and bless our relationship because I'm walking with Him, and that's what He wants for me, and I wouldn't be who I am without it. So you explain, but then you go, and you follow Jesus Christ and let everything else come after that. Let every other relationship be conditioned upon you as a man who's going to follow Jesus Christ. Otherwise, I'm telling you, you are wasting your time. You are trying to flatter other people. You're trying to gain their praise and gain their approval because you're so insecure, you can't be who you think you ought to be. It's pitiful. It's truly pitiful. Get your life lined up on Jesus Christ and walk with Him, and I'll promise you, it'll make you a better husband It'll make you a better father. It'll make you a better employee. It'll make you a better leader. It'll make you a better civic servant if you'll get your life lined up with Jesus Christ. And it's so helpful for everybody else because then they can just predict your, your behavior. All they have to do is read the Bible, and then they ought to know what you're going to do. You become very predictable. And one of the key elements of effective leadership is to be predictable. There you have it. Everybody should know you're a Christian man, and that's the way it's going to be. When Robert E. Lee was president of then Washington University, now Washington Lee, he said, there's one rule here, gentlemen, be a Christian gentleman. That was the student policy handbook, Christian gentleman. What else do you need? It's right there in the book. You know what to expect of each other. It's right there in the book. And that's what, that's what he said to his student body. Now you need a lot more rules than that. Why? We left the book. And so now, now you're going to have to create all these policies and define uh, something else. But man, men, just be a man of God, and then your families can follow you. Now, most of the time when we have divisions in our families, it's usually our fault. So I don't mean to say that just merely by professing that you're going to follow Jesus, you don't have any responsibilities to clean up this mess. No, I'm not just saying you're following Jesus, but really follow him. And look how he loved his mother when he was dying on the cross. He looks to John and says, John, behold your mother. And he says to his mother, Mother, behold your son. He took care of her even through his death. So Jesus loved his family, and so will we. When we're following Jesus, we will really love them and really serve them. But notice that the mission of Jesus brings radical consequences. It does divide us. We shouldn't be surprised when people oppose us because in this epoch, in this age, uh, we are living between the ages, the age of peace and the age of war. And we experience both peace in our relationship with Christ and war with those who do war with Him. If they do war with Christ, they've got war with us. And you know I don't mean the sword literally. 
but you mean that we're, I mean that we're laying down our lives. Now, look at verses 37 through 39. We come to another radical idea where Jesus teaches us that the mission of Jesus demands radical commitment. There are radical consequences, but it's because there is a radical commitment. And our commitment, I know, scares people. It scares our families. It can scare your wife. If you got converted after marriage, you know what I'm talking about. Scare the bejabbers out of your wife. When you make this radical commitment, a commitment that transcends your marriage. Now, honey, what does that mean? Uh, she would say. And here you have it. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Do you see what Jesus is claiming? He is claiming absolute first place. In fact, in Luke 14, he uses very hyperbolic language. He says, if you don't hate your father and mother, you cannot follow me. And the reason, of course, he's saying that is that by contrast, your love for him makes everything else look like hatred. You're, there is one singular commitment to him. And you forsake every other commitment as an ultimate commitment. They all become penultimate, secondary commitments. And they are commitments you make because you make the ultimate commitment. The reason I'm completely committed to Allison as my wife is because I made an ultimate commitment to Jesus Christ. And I assure you, she would have left me many years ago if that ultimate commitment hadn't been made. I'm so grateful. Now listen, if you want to trap your wife, just get her, lead her to Christ. Uh, and then she won't leave you. <laughs> lead her to Christ. And then she's nicely trapped, and so are you. And there are times in our marriages when we need that divine trapping. And there are times in your business when you need to be trapped by following Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you would have gotten yourself in a whole bunch of trouble. Or you wouldn't know how to repent. You wouldn't know how to ask for forgiveness. You wouldn't know how to humble yourself. You wouldn't know how to restore the mess that was created by your own sin unless you were ultimately committed to Christ and trusting in Him. So Jesus is saying, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Unless you make Him your sole ultimate commitment, you don't yet have it. You don't yet have Him. You're not yet a Christian man. A Christian man is a person who makes that commitment. Pure and simple. So you can't mix him in with other things. You can't say God and country and family. That's what all the politicians say. Horse hockey. It is God. And then I have a bunch of secondary commitments. If you're a Christian man, you don't buy that, buy that political rubbish. You know, wrapping the, the flag the Bible with the flag or the flag with the Bible or whatever we do, wrapping it all together. Hang that. When you're with Christ, as Christ alone is the ultimate commitment, and then your patriotism comes under that, your family commitments come under that. And that's what he's saying. Unless you do that, you're not following him. You don't know him. You thought you knew him. You only knew him as a religious figure. You only knew him as a teacher. You only knew him as a guru. You didn't know him personally. If you do, believe me, you understand, nobody can stand up to that. Nobody can compare to the allegiance that's demanded by him, if you know him. If you know him like John knew him in Revelation chapter 1, when he saw him falling down as though he were dead. If you know Jesus like that, you got it. You know, there's no, when you look at your wife, you don't fall down as though dead. You might do some other things. But you're not awestruck. When you meet Jesus, you're awestruck. 
And everybody comes in under that. That's what Jesus is saying. You don't get it. You don't know me. You're not worthy to be my disciple because you don't have personal knowledge of me. You haven't come close enough to see who I am. So if you, if you mix me in with your mother, good heavens. Uh, yeah, you got it. All right. That hello is, hey, would you get on moving to the next point? I think I heard enough on that one. Uh, I, hey, listen, I know that rhetoric. I know exactly what you're saying. Come on now. Uh, all right, verse 38. Look, he's talking not only about putting Jesus above your top relational commitments. And believe me, that's lonely. It's lonely unless you know Jesus, really know him, because he comes alongside you. But humanly speaking, it'd be very lonely because if you put him first, everybody else is second. Well, they may not want to have be in your life if you're going to make them second. And you, you can be very lonely that way. But look what he says. He's going to take this even further. It's not just the renunciation of the pleasure you receive in your closest relationships. But look at this verse. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Wow. Now, some scholars say that Matthew slipped this into this speech that Jesus couldn't have really said that yet because we haven't gotten to Matthew 16 where he explains the cross. But Jesus, uh, I think what the scholars there are forgetting is that uh, Jesus often teaches by just keep dropping hints, dropping hints, dropping hints, dropping hints. I mean, in Matthew, I mean, I'm sorry, in Mark, he tells his disciples three times that he's going to be crucified and then raised on the third day. They still don't get it. So <laughs> it wouldn't make any difference where this comes, Matthew 16 or anywhere else. They still don't get it. Uh, so, but Jesus is saying something about the cross. And we don't get an account here that the disciples react strongly. And I think it's because they're thinking, oh, he's really talking in very figurative language. They have no idea that he really means a literal cross. Um, for many of them, I mean, how many of them were crucified? Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew uh, was, a, we have from non-biblical history, crucified on a diagonal cross. Philip was crucified on a slender cross. Others were flayed alive and stoned to death and so on. But there are several crosses, literally. Uh, Paul, of course, was beheaded, we believe. But Jesus died on a cross. And here's what he says, take up your cross. Now, a cross was the instrument of cruel uh, punishment, putting a person to death, criminals, uh, in the view of the Roman Empire. So it was a peculiarly Roman institution. And it was known by all the philosophers to be the most wicked thing they had seen, uh, to put criminals to death that way. The Romans loved it because, you know, when you put someone on a, on a stick or on a cross, you get to raise them up and everybody can see. You behave like that man, you're going to look just like him. So it was a warning to everybody around. So the Romans used to love, used to, uh, loved to use crosses because it was a great advertisement for the uh, ferocity of the Roman soldiers. And when Jesus was 12 years old, uh, we know from secular history that just north of him in the city of Sepphoris, uh, within walking distance, there was a famous occasion where the Romans uh, crucified a bunch of people in the, in the village of Sepphoris. So Jesus, by the age of 12, had seen people on crosses. He knew exactly what he was talking about, and he knew the agony of it all his life. So it's been very much on his mind. And here's what he's saying. Of course he knows he's going to die on a cross, but what he's saying is, I know you're going to die on a cross too, every one of you if you follow me, because you're in union with me 
And whatever happens to me, whatever opposition comes to me, that opposition is going to come to you. It is difficult for us, as we've seen in our time and in our peculiar place in world history and our place, our location geographically, for us to understand some of these things. And that's the reason you need to read a little bit about world Christian news because there are plenty of Christians in other nations that are being put to violent death because they are believers. That is the majority report for the church. Our experience is a minority report. We have to learn what it means uh, to face this kind of opposition. But even though we don't have that physical opposition, we still very much, just as much as these disciples, experience the cross. We experience the cross. Now, Joseph Son, the, the pastor uh, in Romania who was... Uh, persecuted many times over during the Ceausescu regime. He called himself a living martyr. He he wasn't put to death by the authorities. He was just beaten up and threatened with death and imprisoned several times. But he used to say that there are two crosses. There's the cross of Christ, and then there's the cross of the believer. And his claim was that there really won't be any salvation among the unbelievers. There really won't be salvation in the world until there's a cross in the church. And his complaint was he couldn't see the cross in the Western church, that we had not really taken it up. And I'd like for us to talk for a moment about what it means to take up the cross. What it means to take up your cross is to deny yourself of all the pleasures in this world that you could be grabbing for is your ultimate claim to happiness in life. That you're taking up self-denial to all the ways in which you want to impress other people and put yourself forward. You are basically denying yourself. You're putting yourself on the cross. So whether someone else puts you on the cross, as was the case with Joseph Zahn, he and you both Put your own self on the cross. You are taking up your cross yourself so that you may be crucified to the lusts and the desires of the flesh, the allurements of the world, and the temptations of the evil one himself. So certainly what Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow him, of course we know there's life. We'll get to that in a moment. But the way to life through Jesus Christ is through death to the things in your own flesh, your own selfish ambitions, and death to the things in this world, you cannot have your cake and eat it too. You cannot have this world and have Christ. There has to be a decisive uh, move on your part to take Christ with his persecutions. Now let's turn to an example in the scriptures. Uh, Just turn over a few chapters to Matthew 16, and you'll see there that Jesus does teach his disciples about his own death on the cross. And you remember what Jesus says to him. He says, no, Lord, verse 22. Now you can say no and you can say Lord, but only Peter can say no, Lord. It just doesn't go together. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. In other words, if you deny Jesus his mission to die on a cross, your message is from the pit of hell. And let me just go ahead and say it. The messages you hear on the TV, the messages you hear in many churches that are absent of a cross, they're from the pit of hell. All this self-actualization and having a better day today or tomorrow through some spiritual exercises or just following these five principles of happy parenthood or whatever it is, they're really 
if they're given as a substitute for the gospel, they're from the pit of hell. Because Peter says, surely not you, Lord, going to the cross. Get behind me, Satan. That's exactly what Satan wants me to do, is to avoid the cross. And let me tell you something else. This is exactly what Satan wants you to do, to have a crossless Christianity, which is from the pit of hell. It's no Christianity at all. It's just a very poor substitute, a counterfeit, something that leads you astray, deludes your own family, and leads other people astray. What Christ wants us to have is a Christianity with the cross right at the center, front and center. We'll get more to that in a moment. But look then what Jesus says in verse 24. He then told his disciples, after he gave them the lesson about his own cross, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And there he gives words very similar to the ones we're studying today. So Jesus talks about his cross, and then he says, if you follow me, there has to be your cross. Now, you remember, uh, turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. But while you're turning, you will uh, remember that Paul says in Philippians that he wants to, he, you know, he's had all these human accomplishments, and he said, they're like rubbish to me. He said, because I want to know one thing, the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus as Lord. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And then he said this, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So to know Christ is to get close to him, both in his glorious resurrection reality. There's life, glory, joy. I also want to know him in his suffering. Why? Because I want to know him. Because knowing Him is the essence of life itself. And knowing Him means I'm going to share in His sufferings. Becoming like Him in His death. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's what He was like in His death. And the only way for us really to be forgiving, gracious people, the only way for us to be servants, the only way for us really to long for heaven like Jesus did, did Father, into Thy hands I commend my spirit, He said on the cross. The only way for us to do that is by knowing Him and sharing in his sufferings. So we don't like to get beat up. We're not sadomasochists. But we love getting to know Christ. And if we get to know him through suffering with him, praise be to Almighty God. And we walk that Via Dolorosa with our heads tucked out of humility, but our hearts rising up with joy and glory. Now, look in Galatians 6. And Paul, you will remember in this letter, is... It's a life and death fight for the gospel. A life and death fight. You find all the viscera of the Apostle Paul coming out in this letter like no other letter. There are passionate letters like 2 Corinthians when his own credentials and the gospel's being challenged in some degree. And you get his passion in Philemon when he's teaching Philemon how to uh, let go of a former slave, Onesimus. There you have the Magna Carta, Carta of uh, liberty for slaves in Philemon. Certainly the passion of Paul comes out there, but nothing like here because the very essence of the gospel is being challenged. And when he gets to the end, he says, let me tell you the motives of these people. These people who are mixing uh, trusting in Christ with some other things you're supposed to do, some other rituals. He said, they've got a motive. They want to boast about your flesh. They want to boast that they got some recruits, some more circumcised men. He said, I'm not going to boast about that. And then he says what he is going to boast in. Look at verse 14. He says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says here, 
I boast in the cross. Now, if you're a first century Roman citizen or you've been under the oppression of Rome, you say, why in the world would anybody boast about a cross? It's kind of like you're saying, man, I don't have any boasting in life except for an electric chair. Man, I just really boast about an electric chair. See, that man's sick. Why would he boast about an instrument of cruel persecution? Well, if you survey the New Testament, you'll find out why he boasts because the cross reveals God's character above all things. His holiness, his faithfulness, his grace, his love. Also, the cross, we learn, is the only way by which men can be saved because the sacrifice that's made on the cross was made on our behalf. So Jesus died the death we should be dying because of our sin, and he paid the full price for us on the cross. And therefore, we now are admitted into the very presence of God, both now spiritually and later physically. Of course, we boast in the cross. And then you learn thirdly in the New Testament that the cross is the instrument by which all of the evil powers were finally defeated. Now it looks like on the cross, the outer appearance is that the powers of evil finally triumphed. They were able to put to death the one perfect human being who ever put his sandals on this earth. And the powers of hell overcame him. That's what it looked like. But the apostle went on to say in Colossians chapter 2, by virtue of the resurrection, we know this, that the cross was the place where the principalities and powers were put up to public disgrace. And he triumphed, God triumphed over those powers at the cross. Now, if you doubt that, I understand. Let me tell you who doesn't doubt. The demons do not doubt. They know they were completely vanquished at the cross. So the cross has accomplished these three main objective achievements for us. But now look at Galatians 6.14 and you'll see the Apostle Paul is boasting about the cross not because of what it does for us. He boasts about that elsewhere. Here he's boasting about what the cross does in us. Look what he says. May I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world was crucified to me and I to the world. Now what he's boasting about specifically is the work of the cross in us. What that cross has done to our own character. Now notice how he describes it in this text. He's saying rather than boast about my religious rituals, rather than boasting about my Christian good works, rather than boasting about my credentials as an apostle, rather than boasting about my theological knowledge, rather than boasting about my devotion to God, I'm going to boast about what the cross has done inside of me. Now here's what it's done. The world has been crucified to him. Now what does that mean? There's a 19th century Scottish commentator who describes it this way, and I've never forgotten it. He says, what Paul is saying is that the world, which used to be very alluring to him, and all you have to do is read his spiritual biography in Philippians chapter 3 to get this. He was very allured by the world. He was very good at it. University uh, uh, graduate in philosophy, trained religiously under Gamaliel. He had an unparalleled training both in secular philosophy and in theology. He, he He was a man of champagne tastes. He was a man who had traveled, who knew the world. He was obviously... Uh, able to articulate things. He was very bright. Uh, he was at genius level. Uh, the man had 
many things that would have allured him in this world and had allured him in the world. But John Brown, the commentator, says, what Paul is saying to us is that the world which used to allure him now appears to him like a crucified criminal. Now, what does a crucified criminal look like? It's ghastly. I mean, it's like you're wanting to watch someone get fried in the electric chair. I mean, something's wrong with you psychologically. I mean, I'm dead serious. If you would enjoy such a thing, I'm telling you, something's wrong inside of you. You need some help. Because that's a ghastly thing to want to see that. It's just so awful you turn your head. And that's what you would do. And that's what Isaiah predicted. When Jesus, when the Messiah comes, all men will turn their head from Him. And we, we can't look at the cross. It's so ghastly. Here's what Paul is saying. Let me tell you what the cross has done in me. He said, I boast about this. I'm a very proud man. I'm a very lustful man. And because of Jesus Christ and the cross in me, I now look at the world and it's as attractive to me as a crucified criminal. Well, that is really something. Worldlings prize their gems of beauty, cling to toys of gilded dust, boast of fame and wealth and pleasure. Only Jesus will I trust, says Mary James. Yes, we, we have all these toys of gilded dust. We all are attracted to them. But when we take up our cross and follow Jesus Christ, we experience a power that breaks the bondage. And before you're a Christian, you cannot imagine giving 10% of your income to anything. I remember calling on a customer one time when I was a steel salesman. He, he was a Jewish guy, and he said, So, what does it cost to get a pew in the Presbyterian church? I said, Cost to get a pew? He said, Oh, yeah, we pay for our pews. You know, so do we sit in? What do you all have to pay to sit in your church? I said, We don't pay anything for that. He said, Really? I said, yeah. He said, well, how's the church supported? I said, well, we, we give tithes and offerings. He says, what's a tithe? I said, Steve, you're Jewish, man. You ought to know what a tithe is. I said, that's 10% of your income. 10% of your, are you nuts? I said, Steve, it's right there in the Torah. He couldn't imagine that you'd do such a thing. And then when you take up your cross, that seems like child's play. It seems like first steps. It's, it's where kindergartners begin their walk with Jesus. It's because something's happening in your life. The bondage has been broken. You don't aspire to the same things. And Paul says, I know me. I know what the old Paul, the old Saul really wanted. And, I, I, and I'm experiencing me now, and I am a changed man. I'm amazed at this cross. I will always boast about this cross. It has delivered me from being destroyed by the idols of this world. But go on and look at the text some more. He says, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now John Brown goes on to explain. He says, do you see what the apostle is saying here? He is saying that by virtue of taking up the cross, I now appear to the world as a crucified criminal. I now am just as ghastly in their eyes as someone in the electric chair. And the apostle is boasting about it because no longer does this wicked, sinful, adulterous generation think that he's a darling. No longer is he getting the praises of people who are going to hell. 
The bondage is broken between him and them. He now serves them and loves them. But he looks for nothing from them and takes delight that they don't give him their adulation. And he says it's all because of the cross. Now, gentlemen, there's Christianity. That's Christianity right there. And the reason Paul brings it up to these Galatians is that they're missing the whole boat. They're trying to combine some nice, pious advice in the Christian religion and mix it in with common, conventional wisdom and come up with a merged religious life. And Paul says, to hell with that, literally. And he says, to hell with those who preach that, literally. That's the reason I say this is a very strong letter. He, he anathematizes those who are syncretizing the gospel. And that is mixing it with some other religious ideas and notions. And he says, may they be anathematized. And furthermore, he goes on, I'll tell you men this. He says, they want you to be circumcised. Well, I'll tell you this. Why don't they just emasculate themselves if they want to have a mark? I mean, he doesn't fool around here. Because someone is fooling around with the gospel. And part of that gospel is you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Now, notice in verse 39, back to Matthew 10. You knew we'd come back there eventually. Matthew 10, 39, what does he say? He says, and whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever finds his life will lose it. How are we trying to find our life? Self-actualization. Self-expression, self, 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 self. It's all about me. And when we try to teach young people how to come out of the depth of despair, what do we say to them as a political body politic? We go to our urban areas where the poor are and we say, you got to believe in yourself. Horse hockey! you got to believe in the redeeming God of all gods and Lord of all lords who takes the poor and lifts them up. And he takes those who don't have parents and gives them a father in heaven. He takes people who have nothing and no hope in themselves and gives them hope in him. And he takes people who are empty and fills it with himself. Now there's hope. That'll change lives and change cities and change nations. You tell someone to believe in themselves. Believe what about themselves? Just think about that, would you? Look at what the Bible says about our old self, and then you want to tell someone, believe in your old self. What a waste of time. Now, I do realize there is a psychological phenomenon that's genuine that has, that's called self-esteem. But gentlemen, self-esteem is going to be only fueled properly when we're able to look at ourselves graciously the way God looks at us graciously, which is... In your natural self, you're deserving of hell. Nothing less. Or I should say nothing more. But we have a sense of self because Christ has forgiven our sins and restored and renewed us. He's in the process of renewing us. And He cherishes us and values us. And therefore, we learn to treat ourselves with respect. And of course, then we learn to treat others with respect. And without that message, there's going to be no true respect. And all I, all I have to do is just say, would you please pull out your geography books and your social science books, check world history, see what's going on around the world where people don't believe the gospel. What are they doing to themselves? What are they doing to each other? What are they doing to their environment? Just take a peek. 
And you'll find these pockets where people are dealing with each other lovingly, and there's one thing empowering it all. It's the gospel. And that's what Jesus is teaching us. If you look for a life outside of Christ, you're going to lose it. And certainly at the end day, we'll all find out we're going to lose it. But he says, if you lose your life for my sake, that is, if you take up your cross and deny yourself and the allurements of this world and your desire to be the darling of the world in their eyes, you give that up, gentlemen, you'll find life. There is where life is to be found. When there's death to that which is leading to death, when you break the bondage, now you're set free to enjoy real life. And all I can say to you is, the only way you're going to find it is to die and take up the cross. You cannot find it on this side of the cross. You'll find it on the other side of taking up the cross. And I just say to you, come and take the cross. And what is that life? That life is the pleasure of being the brother of Jesus Christ and enjoying all that he has to offer and taking in his favor, being his darling and his being your darling and you two being very, very close and his guiding you through life and walking with you and talking with you and reminding you of his love and promising you eternal glory so that you know where you're going. You have a purpose in this life and you have a direction for the next life. And you're a new man. That's where life is. It's with Christ. And you can't get there without taking up the cross. So the mission of Jesus, we see, demands radical commitment. Now verses 40 through 42. This is amazing. (laughs) The mission of Jesus bestows unspeakable rewards. It's amazing. Now look at this remarkable passage where he says in verse 40, Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Do you see this? Whoever receives you as brother, whoever takes you in, has just as well received the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you're a man who is taken up the cross and died to the things of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and you are committed to the things of real life, walking with Jesus Christ. If someone receives you and receives your message, they have received the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize what power you've got? What authority you have as a brother of Jesus Christ? You're a prince. Now, most people in this world have no idea of this. You're incognito, I grant. But you're a prince. And one day, everybody's going to find out that they just took a prince in their home. They just took a king. And you know, we have stories, both mythological and real, of some kings who got kind of tired of their castles. And they would put on beggars' uh, habits. And they would just go through the streets and, and just see what it's like to be an ordinary person. And that's what you are. You put on this outer garment. You look like, well, I won't say what you look like. But you look like everybody else. Nobody has any idea who you really are. One day they're going to find out that when they took you in and took your message in, they took in the God of the universe. They took in Christ, His Son, and by virtue of that, they took in God Himself. And look at the explanation in verse 41. One who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. That's just a general principle. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. General principle. 
when you honor somebody because of who they are, you share in the reward that they get for who they are. It's an amazing principle, isn't it? You see it with Elijah and Elisha. Elijah with the, the, the woman that only had enough oil you know, for one meal. She was going to die. And Elijah says, no, you're not going to run out of oil until the rain returns. And sure enough, she had overflow of oil. And then her son died, and Elijah brought, her back to, brought him back to life. Same thing with Elisha, the Shunammite woman. Same thing. She took him in, and he provided for her. Then her son died. And remember, Elisha came back and lay down on that boy, his face to his face, his hands to his hands, and his flesh, the boy's flesh got warm. And then Elisha calls the mother in, and she picks up her son, and he's, re, he's resuscitated. So she had taken in the prophet and given the prophet a little prophet's chamber there, and she got the prophet's reward of life. And so it is with folks who are taking you in, in all of your distinctiveness and in all of your ugliness to this world. When they take you in because they sense something about God in you, then they will receive God's reward. And then look lastly, verse 42. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Here's what Jesus is saying. You're so special, so identified with him, that anyone who does the least little thing for you because you're a disciple of Jesus will not lose their reward. Do you understand what power you have? What favor you're doing someone? When you share the gospel and they're doing you a favor because you're sharing the gospel, do you have the sense, you should, that you're doing them a favor because they're going to get a whole lot more than the little cup of water they just gave you. That... You're allowing yourself to be taken in and appreciated by others who are seeking God. You're allowing them to receive the ultimate reward. So what Jesus is saying, yes, there will be a sword. There will be division between you and some people very close to you in this life, and it will be very painful. But you must go through this because unless you self-consciously, by own motivation, take up the cross and crucify the lusts and the desires of the flesh. Unless you do that, you cannot follow Him. You'll lose your life. But if you'll lose your life in this world, you'll gain your life in this world and the world to come. And furthermore, everybody who touches you and everybody who blesses you will be blessed. Just like God said to Abraham, I'm going to take you out there to bless the nations. And through you, I will bless the world. And that's exactly what God is doing with you. Do you realize how important your office is? The office of a follower of Jesus is the highest office in the world. And it brings more blessings than any office in the world. Because God is giving His reward to those who take in His messengers and His message into their hearts. It seems to me this is pretty important stuff. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the mission that You give us the wondrous promises that you give us, for the warnings and the charge that you give us, for the instructions that you give us for how to carry out this life and this mission. And we men this morning would ask you, help us today gladly to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, to follow you, and to wait for that glorious day that is coming. And we make all of our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.